Well, it is a gift to be able to share with you this morning. Um, you know, one of the things I enjoy about not having to preach every week is that when I do get to share, um, I can just kind of look at what is God teaching me in my life right now? What is he speaking? And just kind of speak out of that. When you have to do it every week, sometimes it gets more difficult. And, and, uh, and so uh, this is a lot of fun for me. John and, and Halsey, I, I know they're in British Columbia. It looked like yesterday. I guess I saw a great picture from a, a lake up in British Columbia. They will be coming back next week. And so John should be back with us uh, preaching, which will be, be great. Um, I don't know if you've gotten to go on vacation this year, but uh, we did. We went to Florida. I told some of you all about it, but it, I got real excited kind of planning to go there this year because I went out and found a bunch of uh, snorkeling equipment. And uh, when I grew up, uh, I grew up uh, in California and then I spent about four years in Washington State. And there were some beautiful lakes in Washington State and my friends there all did snorkeling. And so I have all these incredible memories uh, growing up of just going to these lakes and swimming and there's just something is if you've done it uh, scuba diving or snorkeling there there's something about getting under the water uh, it's just it's a different world and so then as I got older uh, uh, got to snorkel in Belize there, there's some beautiful coral reefs there uh, got to snorkel in Hawaii and so uh, when we we're planning our vacation we went out and we went to uh, a scuba diving place downtown here and found some great used equipment and I was excited because I knew I was saving money because if I had to rent it compared to what I bought it for, uh, it was a win. So it was a win all the way around. Great equipment. So I took the kids and we went to Destin, which was fairly close to where we were staying. And uh, they've got some beautiful places to snorkel out there. And so we're out swimming around. It was fun for the kids to get to kind of experience that and see that. Um, Something in me, though, it it was strange. I couldn't explain it. But... uh, uh, we saw beautiful fish, but my memories of seeing beautiful fish in the past, and I remember how in my, like in my soul, in my heart, just came alive. Like, it was worship, you know? And when we're swimming around, I enjoyed it, but there wasn't like that within my heart. I was enjoying it in my head, but in my heart, there, it just wasn't that same, same kind of feeling. And then we uh, got out and we went on the other side of the, it wasn't a reef, what was it? What do they call that? A jetty, I guess. On the other side of the jetty. Thank you, Samuel. (laughs) Uh, We went on the other side. The guys were kind of tired. So I'm out there swimming around. You know, they're thinking there could be sharks, that type of thing. And uh, so I'm swimming around. All of a sudden, this huge thing comes flying past me. And I'm thinking it's a shark. Samuel's screaming up on on the rocks there. You know, Dad, watch out. And all of a sudden, this huge manatee swam by me. And so I did what you would naturally do. I took off after it, you know. So I'm swimming after it and finally catch up. And it, there's a boat with an anchor out there. And so the manatee just starts kind of sitting there. About, it's probably about 10 feet long, kind of scratching its back on this thing. And I, I got to go up and touch it. Got all the boys in the water. And we went out and saw it. Just one of those amazing things. Uh, when I saw that, something much more kind of touched my heart. I leaped a little bit more. But when I got out, I began to talk to Susan, and, and it came out kind of weird, but just said, it was a little bizarre for me. And uh, what I realized, beauty wasn't touching my core as much as many of it used to. And as I've thought about that and I've talked to friends um, 
think I understand some of that. You know, we have a tendency at times to operate through our head much more than through our hearts. And you can feel it. I can feel it in different times, like if I teach through my head or if I teach through my heart. If I'm dealing with my kids and it's just through my head or if it's through this inner part of who I am. If I worship God just with my head or if I can be moved into my heart, there is a, there's a difference there. And I'm not going to necessarily talk all about that today. I, I'm on a journey, though, to discover what does it look like for God truly to have captured my heart? What does it look like to live life out of your heart much more than out of your head? A good friend of mine and I, we're reading a book together right now. It's called Silence, the Mystery of Wholeness. And, and there's, a, there's a quote in there. He says, happiness and silence belong together just as do profit and noise. So long as we live in a commercialized world, noise reigns. All the distractions that keep us from the center of our being, where stillness of soul can resonate with silence, belongs to the world of profit. I'm just beginning this book, and I'm not, gonna, I, I, I'm not there yet, but part of what this author deals when he's talking about silence, he's really talking about the Lord. But what, what he's saying is this. We live in a world where profit and accomplishment and all that reigns. And we are a driven people, right? And we are in a world where everything is moving so fast that often our hearts are not open. We are so busy just living life that I think that the spiritual, when I talk about our heart, I'm talking about the soul, the real you. The part that when God grabs it, you know it, right? That noise keeps us from getting to where we live out of there. I think that's true. I think God is in the business of cultivating a heart. That's whole toward him. We know the scripture said that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, looking for those whose hearts are whole toward him, right? The Lord longs for us and loves for our hearts to be whole toward him. But we live in a world that is contrary to that. And so part of it is learning how do we experience more and more of a bit, putting ourselves in a place where God is able to touch our hearts and we're able to live out of that. I am convinced that God uses beauty and pain to do this. God uses beauty and pain to touch our hearts and our lives, to open our eyes to be able to see, for him to begin to cultivate that heart. Sometimes there are moments, sometimes there are seasons, but God uses both beauty and blessing, and he uses pain. To create that. Let me give you some examples. I have had many moments of beauty in my life. And I'm talking about the beauty where God touches your heart in such a way that you glorify him. You, you, you are moved to see that. I've, I've seen that in nature. Yeah, I can look, think back over my childhood. I'm sure you can. Of different points where we were at places where we were just in awe. When I lived in Washington and Oregon... Um, I remember going to the coast, and, and there were 
there's a lot of cliffs in, in that part of the world. I remember there's this one spot and this camp I went to with my friend's family for about three years in a row. And uh, there was this one spot on this mountain where I would go and I would watch the sun set on this, this, this incredible view of the ocean. I'd, I'd be way up, I don't even know how, 100 feet, uh, way up on the side of this cliff. And I remember specifically how God moved me in that place, the beauty of that place. A couple summers ago, the kids and I, I remember climbing a mountain that was extremely difficult. But I look back and I see the pictures of them on this incredible mountain in Colorado. And being moved, I remember being moved, sharing that beauty with my kids. Nature does that. God has built in for us the ability to get outside and look at the stars or look at the sky. Now we can see it and not be moved, but the truth is God often uses that in our lives. He uses people. Susan and I, this next Saturday, are going to celebrate 28 years of marriage. And um, I remember the first day I saw her. And she wasn't dating a friend of mine. I really, really loved her, but I I knew I loved her. Uh, I liked her, at least. But I knew I loved her really quickly. But I remember 28 years ago, the day when she walked down that aisle. Um, I remember like it was yesterday, right? God touched my heart in that moment as I experienced his goodness through the beauty of, of my wife. I can remember holding every one of my children after they were born. And those times where, you know, you're rocking them to sleep, they're laying there on your, your shoulder and you're so dead tired when they're newborns, right? And you're afraid you're going to fall asleep and drop them, which I probably did a few times. But uh, I remember that. I could still feel it. Beauty. Seeing God at work in a person's life, hearing stories of God moving and seeing it. Again, those moments of seeing God in the midst of life and beauty, he uses that. So there there are those moments of beauty, but there are moments of pain and struggle. And sometimes there are seasons. And the reality is seasons of life, there's often a lot of struggle and there's a lot of beauty. And God wants us to see and experience both of them. But struggle and pain is part of what God uses. David speaks of this in Psalm 34, 18 and 19. Now, we're going we're gonna to really focus on 33 today. But in, in, in uh, 34, he says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of all of our troubles. Many, it's interesting, he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. If you have heard a gospel that says when you follow Jesus, life is going to be perfect. You're going to be rich, you're going to be happy, you're no longer going to suffer, there's no illness. Relationships are all just right. I mean, it just doesn't happen, right? In fact, though, in the midst of life and even the hardships, I imagine in this room, every single one of us have something in our life that is not right that we would want different. Some of you are experiencing incredible grief right now. Some of you lost a spouse, and maybe it's 10, 15 years ago, but the grief of that loss is still a reality. We have messed up relationships. We don't have maybe lost our job. I mean, all kinds of things, physical issues, job problems. All of us have things that we worry about, that we're struggling with, Essentially, when, when 
Jesus talks about the soils of our heart. Do you remember the one where he says, where there's things of this world that can choke out the word of God? You know, worrying about money and the clothes and all those types of things. And when we worry, it chokes out the word of God. I think it covers our heart often. And we begin to operate just out of our head and not out of our heart. You know, we've had many times of affliction and struggle and pain in our lives. I, I share with you, I think the first time I, I preached with you guys before that, you know, Susan and I, although we have five kids now, we went through four years of not being able to have children. As young, young, well, we weren't that young. We, we, were pretty, we waited a little bit after we were married, but we were, we were young. We never expected we'd have problems having kids. I remember that being such an incredible journey of pain and sense of loss. We've had lots of different experience of that in our lives. I kind of call this last 12 years of our life this entrepreneurial exploration. I've had a season of entrepreneurial exp- uh, uh, exploration. And when I left my first church, I, I think I told you all, in 99 to start a ministry called Mission Houston, it put us on this journey that my life came alive because it's what God's made me for. I'm an entrepreneur. I love to start things for the kingdom. Whether it's a church, whether it's a ministry, whether it's a business, I know it's part of what God's made me for. But it put us on this journey. And it's been this season of life that hasn't necessarily been easy. There's been a lot of beauty. We've had the privilege of raising five kids and and continue to do that. There's been a lot of beauty, but in the midst of that, there's been challenges. Starting things and and financial challenges and, and wondering, okay, God, we're in the center of your will, but this is hard. This isn't fun. Remember, probably a, a year ago, um, some unexpected things happened, and, and I, I remember being at a place I, of just deep, deep sorrow in my heart, just struggling. God, we have followed you. I feel like we've been in the center of where you wanted us to be. There's been blessing, but this isn't any way to live. And I remember combing through the Psalms. Um, and I, I committed to reading the Psalms. I don't know if you've read the Psalms through this way, but where you read like, one psalm, like on the first of the month, you read one, and then you add 30, 31, 61, 91, and 131. So if you add 32, whatever psalm of the day you're reading, you get through the whole psalms in a month. So I did it that month. And as I was reading through the psalms, this Hebrew word that's uh, translated in the ESV in, in two words, steadfast love, kept coming up. And it was powerful for me because in the midst of where I was on this journey, I kept coming to the fact, the truth that God's steadfast love was a reality for me. And I read it over and over and over again. It's used 127 times in the book of Psalms. There are 150 Psalms. And this phrase, steadfast love, occurs in 51 of them. Literally, a third of every Psalm, you read this Hebrew word that, that they translate steadfast love. David, who I just love, David, who... The Bible talks about it was a man after God's own heart, right? David, whose life often was incredibly painful. David, who had a miserable moral failure. David, who wasn't necessarily a great dad. David, who had lots of enemies. He had friends turn on him. That David, he wrote about half of the, the Psalms, like 70 scholars differ in how many, 73, 78, um, He wrote a lot of the Psalms. In 35 of the Psalms that he wrote, he used this word. Is what he held on to. Is the thing that grounded him. Steadfast love. 
The Hebrew behind that phrase, steadfast love, is, a, is an interesting word. It's very difficult to translate into our English. It means a love that is based on a covenant commitment. In the scriptures, it's used in its relationship to Yahweh, to God, and his relationship with his people, the Israelites. It is a loyal, a faithful kind of love. It is the love that God over and over again expressed to Israel and his people. God's loving kindness, it's translated in another. His steadfast love is that sure love which will not let Israel go. And it's that sure love that will not let you and me go because we belong to him. Not all of Israel's persistent waywardness could ever destroy it. And they were unfaithful, weren't they? They would follow God and they wouldn't follow God. They'd follow God, they wouldn't follow God. They'd worship other gods. Yet his steadfast love was true. God remained faithful. The steady, persistent refusal of God to wash his hands of wayward Israel is the essential meaning of the Hebrew word which was translated steadfast love. Now, now that, that becomes even wider when you begin to think about God's relationship with Israel and what they did. So, you know, again, Israel, they, they weren't always following the Lord. Often they weren't. As we just mentioned, I mean, they worshipped other gods. They did everything but worship God in much of their history. Yet God's steadfast love was a reality. And for this reason, the predominant use of the word comes to include this idea of not just a loyal love, not just a consistent love, but a love that is full of mercy and forgiveness. When we try to estimate the depth and persistence of God's loving kindness, His steadfast love, His mercy, we must first remember that the passion, His passion for righteousness. God is a righteous God. He demands us to be righteous. His passion for righteousness is so strong that He could not be more insistent in it or demand for it. But God's persistent love for his people is more insistent, insistent still. It's this, this beautiful picture. God, and it's really what led Jesus to come and die for us. Because of God's love. His steadfast love for me and you. And so this word, it stands for the wonder of his unfailing love for the people of his choice. And he's chosen you. And he's chosen me. If you turn with me to Psalm 33, and we're going to put it up on the screen. I just want to read through. This is one of those psalms. Of the psalms that David mentions, uh, this word, of this idea of steadfast love. He, he uses it here, and I, I just want to come out of it with kind of two points for this talk today. For you and me. In Psalm 33, he begins, he says, I shout for joy, I shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made 
and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to, the, to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom have chosen, he has chosen as his heritage. And then in verse 13 he says, The Lord looks down from heaven. And he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those whose hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. You know, my desire really for our time today um, we're not going to figure out what it looks like for us increasingly in our life um, to live in a way um, where we live more out of our heart than our head. I, that's going to be my next time I preach, <laughs> hopefully, uh, maybe. Um, I want to learn that. After following Jesus for all these years, you know, doesn't he continue to teach us things and speak to us in different seasons? So that's what he's teaching me now, and that's what I'll share the things I'm learning, and you can share with me the things you've learned. Um, but my desire for just in a very practical way is for us to experience the touch of the Lord in today and in this week and in some of those areas of our life where we need to see His beauty, where we need to see His presence, where we need to see His power. That He would touch us in our hearts in those areas and give us hope. That we would experience His steadfast love. Um, so the first thing that I'd say to you today is hope in his steadfast love. You can hope in it. Jesus gave his life for you. That in Christ you are his covenant people. You belong to him. So the things we read in Psalms, in the Old Testament, where he is referring to his people and the steadfast love, that even their unfaithfulness could not keep him from stopping. He could not keep from loving them. You cannot keep him from loving you. He loves you. If you read through some of the Psalms, I mean, the truth is because his steadfast love is, is present. I mean, David would cry out to the Lord and would depend on his steadfast love for God to come and show him. There, there's a great passage, I think it's 34. Maybe I read a little bit of 34, but I think it's in there where I mean, he literally says when his neighbors see him coming, they run. You know, <laughs> That's a bad day when your neighbors don't even want to be around you. you know? He knew that, and he cried to the Lord to come and to rescue him. 
And God, God promises in that, man. God is not going to let us down. He will redeem us. He will strengthen us. He will be powerfully present in our lives. So, so my hope is that you will put your hope in the steadfast love of Jesus in those specific areas in your life right now where you know you need to do that, you need to experience it, in those places of pain or uncertainty or fear or struggle, those places that bring condemnation or hopelessness, my prayer is that we would put our hope in God's steadfast love in those places. Again, in verse 13, he says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. He sees us. He sees you. He looks out over all the inhabitants of the earth, 14 says. And 15, it says, He who fashions the hearts of them all, he has fashioned your heart. He loves and longs to speak to your heart, to be present in the center of who you are, to be real and powerful in those places. And the noisiness of our lives often keep us from hearing, but if we learn to quiet our hearts and our souls and see Him there, He will speak, He will be present. And then verse 16 and 17 speaks to me. It says, uh, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. How often we depend on what we have, our personal strength, our wisdom, our group of friends, our community, our wealth. We depend on those things for safety, for security, for happiness. And what David realized, even though he had all much more than probably any of us could ever have, he knew that never satisfied, that never rescued Behold, it says, the eyes of the Lord is on those who fear Him, who are in awe of Him, who depend on Him, and those whose hope is in His steadfast love, that He may deliver them, soul from death, and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our hope and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him, because we trust in His holy name. Let's put our hope in Him. The second thing I'd like to say is that we, ought, we need, we must, we are created for this, to give His steadfast love to others. You know, the Scripture, I love the Scripture, because so often it gives this picture of us, we, we are a reflection of the Lord, right, in our world. In Matthew, and in, in the, the, I've used this before with you all, but I think it's out of the message, where it says, you've been treated generously, so live generously. Because of what God has done to us, we are to live like that. Because we've been loved with a steadfast love, we are to love with a steadfast love. It's a thing that changes the world. In verse 5, he says, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. It is. And the Lord longs for it to be more, but it, it, it often has to flow through you and me. God does it in supernatural ways. We experience the steadfast love as we talked about in the beauty of creation. We experience it through the lives of others. But we, we also, when they impact our lives. And God longs to use you as an extension of his steadfast love in the lives of others. 
That word righteousness could be literally translated restorative justice. That righteousness and justice. God's righteousness. It is a picture of his kingdom coming where the the things that are broken are made whole. It's that idea of peace, shalom. All around us there is broken shalom. There's broken lives. And when we come in and we love people with a steadfast love, that which is broken is made whole. God is able to accomplish his will in people's lives. But it's what we're made for. What I am convinced of is as we learn to encounter God in the silence, and that's not necessarily the absence of noise. It's not just this idea of uh, you know, the, the, the desert fathers who had all this time for solitude. It's, it's hard in our culture, our world, to experience solitude, right? Silence isn't necessarily having to be committed to solitude or even a complete lack of noise. But it's quieting the noise of our hearts and our lives and the speed of our lives to encounter God and to hear from Him. Um, But as we do that, God begins to speak in our hearts. And He uses us as people that bring righteousness and justice to our world. I had a... Susan and I and Hannah went and met with some dear friends of ours, uh, Jason and Amanda. He was a BSM director at U of H a number of years ago, maybe a dozen years ago. And uh, we got funding. We were doing, uh, experimenting with doing house church planting out in the suburbs. And uh, they came and did that with us. And so the idea was just to create simple, reproducible house churches. Some of what Guy Caskey, if you are here last week, is doing. And uh, Jason and Amanda came. And there's something, and it's something that, why Susan and I want to move here so quickly, there's something when you live in community with people, right? You share your lives together, what God does. And with them, I mean, we met in our home every week for three years. We worshiped, we served. We traveled to Ethiopia together. We traveled to uh, all over. We, we, we shared life together. Uh, he was, Jason was remembering Hannah when she was just a little girl. And they'd come to our house, and Hannah every week would say, uh, Come and sit with me, Mr. Jason. And they'd sit down at this little uh, little play table and have dinner together every week. And uh, for him, that was such a picture of the kingdom. Even at the young age, Hannah had a picture of what it looks like to be part of the kingdom. And I know many of you have that, that gift of just sharing life together and with others in your home. Um, but we, we met with them, and, and they're uh, with IMB in, in northern Africa. And... Uh, uh, they're in a, a capital city, uh, and they're telling me a story. This was the, the, on their first, first, they've been there a number of years now. Um, but in this last move, they, they're, in, they, they're living in a Muslim neighborhood. And uh, they were seeing people coming to faith in different parts of the city. But they're having no impact in their neighborhood. Uh, they weren't, nobody was talking with them. I mean, they were just <clears throat> isolated. And as hard as they tried, they couldn't make any contacts, any relationships. And so Amanda said, I think God's calling us just to pray. And I'm going, we're going, let's pray that God would bring somebody in to knock on our door. And so she told me that for a year and a half, two years, they just prayed that every day with no answer. And, uh, and then finally, it was on Christmas Day, they're, they're backing out of their, their, uh, their, their home um, and uh, there's this lady there in full full garb, you know, just you could just see her eyes. It was her neighbor, 
And she was knocking on the door. And as they were pulling out, they rolled down the window. She said, literally translated into English, she, she said, Amanda, I want us to be friends. And, and so from that point on, they began to build this relationship. Same time, Jason was doing what he could do. He, uh, part of that culture, when you have a funeral, you often have it at your house. And so whenever there's a funeral in the neighborhood, Jason would go. Whenever there's an opportunity, they tried to be generous. They'd do things. They were good to the people that worked with them. In that culture, part of the culture is that you employ people that, that live there because as Westerners, you've got money. It's a way to support them. And so you, they'd have a guard and they'd have somebody working in their house. And um, just those people became part of their family. And so... Uh, Jason went to this one funeral, and uh, he went up to introduce himself to the, um, the cleric, the, the, the leader of that neighborhood, the leader of that mosque, very old gentleman. He had a red beard down to here. Jason said, he, he just said, he introduced him and said, my name is Jason McCall. This is at the end of the funeral. And the, and, and the cleric yells that really loud so everybody can hear, I know who you are. So Jason said, everybody just kind of turned to look at him. But this... This man began to quote, said, I know that you did this. You, you were at this funeral. You guys took food to these people. And just began to list all the things that they had been doing, not thinking anybody had known. He knew everything. And then he said, whatever the guard's name was, and this man says you are an honorable man, that you treat him well, that you love Allah and you love the Quran. which, well, <laughs> anyway, but for him, it was like this, from that point on, they, they, everybody in the neighborhood speaks to them. They're in everybody's homes, and God has begun to use them in amazing ways. But as I was talking to Jason and began to talk about this, this, this whole, like, it just hit me because I, I was thinking about God's everlasting love, or his steadfast love, and what that had meant to me. It just hit. That's, that's what we're called to do. You know, in our culture, so often we want it easy. If people like us, we like them. But Jesus said, you've got to love your enemies, right? But that's hard to do. And often the relationships that mean the most, it's not always easy, but if we are persistent, if we are steadfast, God will honor that. God will use that. So I want to call us to that, to a life of steadfast love to others. Which I think that means that we are called to steadfast prayer. There we are called to pray that God has chosen to use prayer as a means to accomplish His work in our world. And if we don't pray, God's will is not always done. I believe that. God has chosen to use us and to use our prayers to move mountains, to see His kingdom come. So he's called us to pray. I think it means steadfast generosity. It means steadfast kindness. It means steadfast hospitality. It means steadfast forgiveness. Steadfast love. God has called us to that. So I'd say this morning, if we could hope in his steadfast love and we could learn to forgive it in very practical ways, God could change us and he can change our world. But it just has to start today, right? It's just one day at a time. I'm going to show you a video and then uh, I'll close this in prayer. Um, I came across this video a couple days ago and it's about gratefulness. 
As we begin to see our world and our lives through God's eyes and his goodness, we see his beauty and his power and his provision, and we we see all the ways his generosity has touched us, uh, it ought to create the sense of gratitude. And gratitude, when we are grateful, it will spread out into, I think, this kind of life where we give the steadfast love. And so uh, watch this video, and then we'll pray together.